Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. When I thought about how I was going to kick off this podcast and where the content would begin, it was a no-brainer that I had to start with my first guest, simply for the fact that sonography here in the United States has started with her. Also on the podcast today, I am lucky to welcome a friend and mentor who was my clinical instructor in 2004 when I was coming out of my ultrasound program, Lorinda Andrist. Thank you, Jamie, for having me today. It's so good to have you. So, Lorinda, can you tell me the impact that Joan Baker has had on you? Joan certainly has been a great impact on my career, both as the founder of the ultrasound program at Seattle University, which I attended, as well as a role model for me on the professional side. Joan has the amazing ability to anticipate the needs of the profession, as well as identifying the strategies that we need to implement to be successful. Yes, Lorinda, and that is why I am so excited to have her with us here today. So without further ado, please welcome Mrs. Joan Baker. Joan, welcome to the International Sonography Podcast. We are so honored to have you. I have to start off by saying I've heard many terms, all endearing, to describe you, and they include matriarch, godmother of ultrasound, pioneer, and innovator, just to name a few. So Joan, my first question for you is, do you realize the trailblazer that you've been for the profession and how your contributions have affected so many within the world of sonography? Well, I don't think you ever realize that. Maybe later on you look back and you um, see what what's happened and so on. But it, it always takes more than one person. You can't be a one-man band. And so... Um, It's hard to answer that question. I understand. I was warned you may be modest. So Joan, during my research on you, I did not find much about your childhood or upbringing. Can you tell me about this and what your hopes and dreams were as a young girl growing up? Who were your role models as a child? Well, I was, um, if you can't tell from the accent, born in England um, in a beautiful town called Chester, uh, which is in the northwest of England. Um... My parents were married at the beginning of the war and my father was dispatched to India, to Calcutta. So I actually didn't see my father until I was four years old. Um, I can't really remember the war. I'm not sure whether what I really remember is more what was talked about and it's talked about so much yes. that eventually you, you, it merges between what you really experienced and what you heard so yes. much about. Um, my father was a tennis player, a chess player, um, wanted to be a teacher, but um, ended up in, um, actually ended up in, in an elected position in the council, but um, also was an auctioneer and a valuer. Um, I have an identical twin sister. Um, my mother didn't know she was having twins until my sister was born. Um, I was kind of found um, in the <laughs> sense that the placenta wasn't delivered and they were looking f- to deliver the placenta when they found me. Um, and uh, maybe that says a lot because I was born 30 minutes later than my sister, which is kind of a long way, a long time to uh, 
uh, be in that (laughs) and come out with any brain cells. Um, Anyway, uh, that's what happened in my actual delivery, which of course was during the war and it wasn't easy to have any prenatal care, Mm -hmm. to say nothing of the fact that there was no ultrasound to take any pictures. Um, My role models were actually tennis players because that's what I thought I was going to be, was a tennis player. There wasn't the professional ranks that there are now. So um, if you were a professional, you taught tennis to other people. But um, And if you played in Wimbledon, you didn't do it for money. Yeah, okay. But um, anyway, it quickly became evident that I was not going to be a future tennis player. And I was warned that I better start studying as I was kind of behind. Um, so anyway, um, that's what I did. I went to a boarding school in Derbyshire that was well known for tennis, played tennis for them. Um, the peer group at the time were people like Little Mo, uh, Margaret Court from Australia, Gula Gong from Australia. Those people, they were the ones that I... Uh, sort of longed to be like Mm -hmm. but knew I never would be so uh, that's really the story of my young life did your sister play tennis with you there as well yes actually she did and uh, we were very naughty um, (laughs) because we looked like two peas in a pod Mm -hmm. so you know my sister couldn't serve very well and um, I kind of served most of the games and nobody knew unless my father was in the stands. The old bait and switch with bait the Bait and switch, yeah. Yes. And he would report us to the to the tournament and we would be, of course, dismissed. But that was the fun of being young. Yeah, that's great. And was it your father who encouraged you to, to find something else that you would be... Oh, yes. Yeah, he was our coach. And, okay. Uh, oh, yep. your father was your coach. Yes. Uh, my sister is still playing tennis to this day. Oh, really? And I'm not. Was it hard to be coached by your parent? I don't know. Hard. I didn't know anything else. <laughs> You're it's truly like, the coach's kid. Yeah. It's like people ask you, "Is it? Um, what's it like to be a twin? I said, I don't know. I've always know been, been one. one. <laughs> Once you realized that tennis was not going to be your career, how did you decide to go into this uh, occupation growing up as a young woman in the UK? That was purely accidental. Um, I was, you know, um, the last hired, least qualified, and I got to do uh, the honourable job of anything that other people had evaluated and had considered to be a waste of time. (laughs) So, uh, by default. By default was how you did it. And then you went to, so there wasn't an ultrasound um, program at that time, you were in an x-ray program. Yes, there was no, ultrasound was in the hands of about four or five people in the world at that time. So there was certainly no program of it. How did you happen to choose radiography then? Well, I wanted to go to medical school and I failed my French and you had to have a language other than English. And nobody told me I could take it again. <laughs> so you thought it was one So my head. father said, well, that didn't work. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> so I said radiography. And he said, oh, no, no, no. No, you're not going near radiation. And I said, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. And um, he made me promise faithfully that I would never disobey the rules of how close I would get to a radiation source and the things like that. Yes. Okay. So I went through school locally where my twin went to London, University in London, and that was the first time we'd really been separated. Mm. Um, Not that we were such close buds, but, you know. Still a twin. Yeah. And um, so then when I graduated, 
they said, well, now you go and see what you can make of your life. And I did. I went to London. Okay. So I went from a very small rural community to the great big city, and I went to work at the biggest, one of the biggest hospitals in London, which was in Paddington. Okay. Uh, it specialised in angiography. And I think it was that little bit of experience that made, made it possible for me to get the job at the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases. Okay. And that's where I got introduced to ultrasound. Well, by default, yes. So what was your earliest encounter that you had with medical ultrasound technology? About 1960, 61, I'd just graduated by a little few months. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a big incident happen to me. Uh, when I had just graduated, I went down to London, and it was one of the worst weather conditions that London had ever experienced. It was a snowstorm, which London doesn't get a lot of, yeah. and it was also what we call the pea super. Before that, it was the fog and the smog. Okay. And so this was at the sort of November, December into New Year time. When I got down there, um, everything was stopped. The tube trains were running, but there was no taxis, there was no overground transportation. And um, so I got sent to St. Mary's Hospital, which is where I was headed, mm-hmm. and I had no nowhere to live. I had my suitcase, which was my worldly belongings, and um, they arranged for me to have a room in the nursing home, the nurse's home. Oh, uh, where the nurses stayed, stayed. yeah. And um, so I was there, and after three weeks, I did my first night on call. And uh, a train came into the Paddington station, which we shared a wall with, yes. put the brakes on, but it didn't stop. Oh, no. And it went all the way through the end of the platform, and everybody was standing up in the train to get off. And trains were the only thing that was running because of the weather. And I had what you call a disaster plan. Yes. What you would institute yes, a disaster a plan. To, yeah. And I had been graduate I'd been a graduate by about three weeks. Wow. And um I had Breaking so many legal yes. X rays of heads and, and every part of the body you mm-hmm. can imagine. Mm-hmm. And um there were twenty one radiographers in that department and I went down at five o'clock to tell the emergency room you call we call them casualty but emergency room people that I was going to try and find some food as I was feeling a little lightheaded mm-hmm. having been x-raying all these people who were falling in the ice Oh, outside of London, yes. No, and I started to climb over the people who were lying on the floor of the hospital. Mm. I didn't know what I was going for, but I got to the emergency room and I said, you know, this was what I was going to go and eat. And they said, well, you better, because the train has just come in, load of people, uh, go upstairs and call your peers, you know, you you go and get them in. Mm -hmm. I called 21 of them, not one respond. Oh, my gosh. So I did the whole thing day and night for two days of the accident, you know, the fallout of this train wreck. 
So I said, nothing will ever be tough again. I mean, it was yeah. it was really something. The bar was set really high in the beginning yeah. there. And I think, uh, you know, I look back and I think, I think that prepared me for being the president of SDMS. Oh, yes. Well, twice, because some people don't know the word no. <laughs> exactly. And so none of your peers answered because they were, because of the snow, they couldn't get in? Or um, right. They, they knew you were calling. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. But... People were living with other people at the yes. time because the weather was so severe and the heat was turned off on many places mm-hmm. and no power. So they and, home. and they weren't home, basically. Yeah. And that was the days before pagers or the oh, yeah. ability yes. to get a hold of anybody yes. that wasn't yes. at their direct residence. Yeah, probably if I had been home, I couldn't have made a phone call if I'd wanted if to. If you wanted to, yeah. yeah. But the hospital had that capability, but it didn't help me. Wow. Was, did there, was there casualties in that group? Oh, yes, but they were mainly... Uh, nobody died from it mm. that I recall, okay. but there were some quite severe injuries, particularly of the people closest to the Did engine right. that went through the mm-hmm. end of the platform. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a heck of a way to get pushed into something. Um, yes, that was a baptism of fire. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a good yeah. way to put it. So, so your earliest ultrasound equipment showed up in that department after you were there? Not in that there? department. Okay. That was St. Mary's Hospital. Okay. It was from there I went to the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases. And how and did you happen to decide to go there? I saw an ad, and I was dating an orthopedic surgeon at the time, <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you go to the National? It's famous. Yeah. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> And I, then I couldn't believe how they'd hired me because I wasn't really, I wasn't, wouldn't normally have been hired by yeah. that, with that little experience. <laughs> well, do you think it was there, do they need people that badly? or do Apparently. You just, okay. <laughs> well, sometimes that's, that's just your opportunity. Yeah. Get the foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when you went there, they already had ultrasound equipment there? Well, you say ultrasound equipment. It it was like wires coming out the back. It was a very much a prototype device. Okay. And nobody thought it was worth anything. We had lots of those types of devices, not ultrasound, but Mm -hmm. other things that were thought to be maybe could find a a way into medicine, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, this was one of them. And they put this with nuclear medicine, mm-hmm. and that was very new at the time. And so I was really d- doing nuclear medicine, mm-hmm. um, which was totally new to me. But it took three days to do a brain scan then. Yeah. And um, we started out using mercury, and till the pathologists got such high counts mm-hmm. because the mercury was in the kidneys, and mm-hmm. most of our patients actually were worked up outside. They were all worked up in outside hospitals and had very unusual diseases and things in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So most of them passed on, mm-hmm. and most of them had autopsies because they were part of, a, of an inquiry or a research mm-hmm. of some type. And then the pathologists that did the autopsies, of course, were getting the radiation from the mercury. And mercury-197 was better than mercury-203. Mercury-197 um, was all used in, the, in, in England. Mm-hmm. All that was made was, was used. And so we needed that particular isotope. And so in order to create a crisis and get it, 
we had to come up with something. And what the hospital came up with was ordering it from America until the medical system got the bill. And that was the crisis. Okay. And so then we... Um, we managed to get our Mercury 197 without any problem. Of course, without that big charge. Yes, yes. But then the next product that came out was um, iodine-131 polyvinyl pyrrolidine, which was a three-day brain scan. Mm -hmm. One day you had to protect the thyroid gland from the, from the iodine, and the next day you injected, and the third day you scanned. And each scan took way over two hours. So I used the ultrasound to determine which side of the brain the tumour was on and whether it was in the front or the back. Mm -hmm. And that way I would do those two views first. Mm -hmm. So I would at least have the diagnosis and the study mm -hmm. and I probably wouldn't get all four views. So that's how ultrasound for me... So it really came out of because it was hard for the patients to... to yeah. How did you... Were they sedated during these brain scans? They didn't they need want, to be. They were, they were pretty much pretty out of on. it. Yes. Okay. But it was the ease of time where you tried to, like, let's see if we can find something easier and faster yes. to do this. And, I mean, some people say, well, why did you need even to take these pictures? Well, and in some, some cases that was probably true. questionable, too. Mm-hmm. But it was part of research and they wanted to have, you know, images to, to use to describe what they had found. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And to advance, you know, figure out new ways of doing yeah. it so yeah. that they could make it better. Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about your invitation to come to Stanford and relocate to the United States? Did you feel like this was a temporary move or a long-term thing for you? Yeah, I didn't really have much to say about it. It took place in Rome. There was a meeting of neuroradiology in Rome. And um, my boss was James Bull, famous radiologist, neuroradiologist. And he went to Rome. And um, Dr. Leslie Zatz was the neuroradiologist in Stanford Medical Center. And he went to Rome. I didn't go to Rome. Um, and apparently in conversation came up this new thing called ultrasound to determine the midline of the brain and whether it was shifted. And um, uh, Dr. Ball, even though I shared an office with him for over a year, mm -hmm. didn't know my name. Or <laughs> oh, no. He would look up with his nose facing the ceiling and say, yeah, there's a girl in there that does that. And I was the girl, and um, the letter came to me from Dr. Zatz saying, would I like to come to this place called Stanford in Palo Alto, California, and be a part of um, a grant. Uh, the grant was the Saprostine Ionone Saprostine Grant okay. on Cerebral Blood Flow. Hmm. And um, I came on that oh, grant okay. and they wanted to use ultrasound mm -hmm. and I thought when I got this letter I, it only took eight weeks and I was in California yes okay it was very easy in those yes. days and especially if they wanted you yes. and apparently they did so yes. they paid my way and um I didn't know, my father limited it to a year because he had this hunch that if I stayed longer, I would stay longer. So you could say I overstayed my welcome. This was in 1965. Okay. 
And um, I bargained with him for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I came over and I was met by Dr. Leslie Zatz and um, I assumed I was joining the mecca of ultrasound in the world by the way I had learnt about Stanford. The pitch that they gave you? Yes. Yeah. Well, they didn't give me the pitch. I kind of did the research. Oh, OK. There was no Google then, but yes. I did the research in the library. And um, I discovered they had found the on-off switch. And that was it. And that was it. And I had been doing it for five years by then. There was no application specialist waiting there. No. <laughs> and this was a Smith Klein and French machine. And um, it was only A mode. And not only was I expected to do the brain, I was now expected to do the heart and some and OB. Mm-hmm. Only A mode. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So um, it was interesting. Yeah. Like you checked out the entire body. You did it all from brain, babies. No, no, because realize this is not B mode. Okay. So we're not making images yeah, so of that. Sort. We're working with Polaroid film. Okay. With little spikes, and we could de- we determine we determined what the uh, the cranium was for the mm-hmm. fetus. Mm-hmm. We went ninety degrees to that and said that the shorter distance was the biparietal, the longer distance was the AP. Okay. We estimated fetal age from that. Mm -hmm. And in patients who had um, problems with rhesus erythroblastosis fetalis, or a rhesus problem, we um, tried to estimate what 28 weeks of gestation was, which at that time, a 28-week gestation really didn't live. Uh, That wasn't a viable viable age. age. Yeah. Um, and we did a um, fetal blood transfusion from that because we knew there was a head, and attached to a head had to be a body. Yes. As opposed to a body have to be a head, head. which we know doesn't always happen. Yes. So yes. We had a head, so now we knew there was a body. Yes. And we then aimed for the peritoneum, mm. the abdomen, yes. um, to give the blood transfusion. transfusion. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a pub style then. It wasn't into the cord. It was into the... Mm. No. Yes, because <laughs> you weren't weren't locating that. You were just lucky to no. get the the belly at that point. Yeah, wow. very lucky to get yeah. the belly. Did you have any cases of anencephalics that you? Oh no, we didn't have too many under our belt when they came out with the drug Regram or Rogram. Mm-hmm. Yes, and patients started to get it, and of course, that was far preferable to what we, than what we were trying to do. Yeah, I bet. So. Yes. That took care of that. We did pericardial effusion in echocardiography, mm-hmm. and that was all we didn't. If we saw the valve, we knew that it was stenotic because if it wasn't, we didn't see it. Yeah. Because it was moving too fast yes. to make a record so on the. So it was the, just there um, and closed, you know, that that's not a functioning valve. Yes, wow. correct. Okay. Um, and then we saw two echoes anterior to that valve. Mm-hmm that seemed to go together, Yes. and we had no TM mode. We uh-huh. had a nurse turn the vertical sweep knob okay. on the back of the machine for that. Wow. We saw these two echoes, and we didn't know what they were. So we took the TGC and cut them out. Okay. Because we couldn't explain them. And they that the great, great arteries? No, no, oh. it was the interventricular septum. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so we only saw the anterior and the posterior walls of the heart, basically. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And a stenotic mitral valve once in a while when it came into view. Yeah. Which, of course, it did more than it does today because the 
you know, we don't have so many strep throats that go untreated that end up in um, rheumatic heart disease. So we didn't have, you know, we had more mitral stenosis than you would see today, but um, they got the TM mode where we didn't need the nurse turning the vertical sweep knob at the back. Um, And we used to put our head into the machine so that no light could get in and we'd leave the shutter open so that we could see two and a half seconds of the heartbeat of the heart and that's what we had so we went through many years after that of echocardiography and but then when we got the pink paper which developed in the in the room yeah um we had miles of pink paper we couldn't take our foot off the pedal because we saw so much so how did people bring new technology ultrasound technology to you was it just researchers in a lab and then when they got the tm mode they said hey we have something to add or was it a Um, company that would come to the hospital this was at stanford correct what this was at stanford still uh yes Yes. stanford they pretty much you know they they came because the salesman came and this was a prestigious institution and he wanted to get the biggest bang for his buck or mm-hmm. for his time, and that's where he would go. I did an evaluation of a, a loca uh, machine mm-hmm. when I was there, I think. Would they bring that to the physicians and then ask you to to see if you can run it, or would they bring it to you to look at uh, to see if you could make sense of it? Well, it ended up with me. I don't know where it started, okay. <laughs> but it ended up with me. I mean, I did a a pig once. In Is this seven. the pig in the hallway story? Yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah, <laughs> I really want to know the story. You've heard of this? <laughs> well, <laughs> vicariously, I hear there's a pig loose in the hallway story that we yes. need to visit yeah. before the end. Mm. So, so those were these days that you're those were back about. in the yeah, in six between sixty five and sixty eight. Hewlett Packard was a local company to Stanford. It was in the same vicinity. And Hewlett Packard decided to make a B-mode scanner, Mm -hmm. which actually physically occupied an 8 by 10 foot room. Wow. And it had a lot of electronics all on one side, and then by the side of that was a, a stretcher, and under... Over the stretcher was where the transducer was, and the transducer was completely mechanical. The operator didn't touch the transducer at all other than to start it. Mm -hmm. And it went, it rocked itself like like a wobbler, Mm -hmm. and it went down on a track, and it indexed a centimeter and then came back, okay? And you put the patient on a stretcher and through the machine like it looked like a CT scanner does, you know, like a donut. Yes. And the top part of the donut was a um, a rubber membrane. But unfortunately, if you've got a crease in the membrane, it showed up right across your image. It's It's an artifact. Mm -hmm. And so we put a dog under there, which was the typical... Um, subject subject okay. for research, Mr. Barker, as we called them. <laughs> and um, we put Mr. Barker in the machine, and unfortunately there were so many creases because of the shape of Mr. Barker's okay. body mm-hmm. that we couldn't get a decent image. Mm-hmm. I think I was the next animal to go through. <laughs> um, and in those days, I too had too many creases <laughs> in the membrane. Um, we didn't want to put a pregnant person through sure. uh, because the weight of the water 
on this membrane. You see the membrane, and above it was a water tank, mm -hmm. and then this transducer that was going in the water tank. Hmm. And so we then opted for a pig. Oh, no, we, we had a calf before we had the pig. Okay. We had a calf, and that too was too shapy, you know, to get it right. The idea being that whatever we got through there, we would get these slices, uh -huh. we would then sacrifice the animal and cut it in the same way that we had, you know, sure. that was the purpose of the it's research. you had too many creases, Joan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was <laughs> ever a sacrifice. sacrificial lamb. But You're like, well, thank you for coming to Stanford. Now this is your ultimate <laughs> sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, we then went with a pig. Okay. Now we used to have to anesthetize, well, put that, you know, put, yeah. yes, but we had to have a living tissue. We couldn't have dead okay. tissue. So we would put the pig down with diabutal, okay. which was the drug. And when you calculated how much diabutal it would take, it was done by the weight. Okay. And a pig weighs an awful lot. And I thought if I give this pig the weight times the dose, mm -hmm. I'm going to kill the pig. <laughs> So I backed off the dose, and everything was going along fine, but the pig woke up. Oh, mid-scan. And the middle of the scan, and in the middle of the machine, and it <laughs> broke the the IV that was oh, in there, okay. you know, and it started down the corridor, which was the x-ray therapy corridor, because it saw light daylight at the place, at the bottom of the corridor. It was running towards the light. Yeah. <laughs> It's all sedated. Just so that research life. project didn't work because... Now, did I hear as part of that story that you went after the pig? I tried to run after the pig, <laughs> but there was somebody at the other end of the corridor, I remember, who was a very large guy, and he caught the pig. And just fell on the pig. He didn't fall on him, okay. but he caught him. Okay. And um, we decided that... Um, the pig had had too much diabutal to be safe to give to somebody to use as food. <laughs> For bacon. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's tainted bacon. Yeah. So it went back to be uh, used for then cut into tissue samples? Or did you not no. even get the study? I don't know what happened to the pig. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it didn't make it, is okay. all I know. <laughs> so you didn't try with another pig with the right amount of sedative? You no. Just said, okay. No, we, we quit right there. <laughs> right there. That was the end of that research. Yep. There is a little bit of greatness out of darkness story when it comes to ultrasound, since the technology had its beginnings and inspirations from really dark times like world war and, and weaponry. Yet now we are, you know, using it to try and save lives, like in fetal echocardiography, for example. Can you talk a little bit about early ultrasound before it was used in medicine and the pioneers that saw its usefulness in the medical technology? Yes, it was used for detection of submarines mm -hmm. um, that's true what happened in World War One was not enough to use in World War One. so the use of sonar was mainly devoted to World War Two, and it was just the detection of submarines um, rather than anything in the medical world mm -hmm. the medical world John Wilde John is okay. who I was trying to he was a very interesting man very okay. colourful interesting person and he had a very rough time because his research was really way before its time. Mm -hmm. But he was not granted what he was due in respect for what he was able to do. And he 
I think the story goes, he came to his office one day and somebody had cleaned it out and put it in the corridor. Um, he was at a university in the Midwest. But he uh, did things, he had a B scanner in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. He had, and he selected the breast to be the organ to work on, as well as the bowel, mm-hmm. uh, which is very difficult. Yes. Um, organ to have selected but he did and um he made the first um endovaginal scanner Hmm. he had an an endovaginal transducer he had a prostate transducer Hmm. he had a b-mode scanner he was way ahead yeah and this was in the 50s you said right yes in the 50s so a lot of credit goes to really to to him mm-hmm. but those of us that were working I wasn't working then in 51 that was too soon for me um but you know those of us in the early days we didn't know about each other because there wasn't all this communication that there is today and there wasn't journals yeah. and papers and there was nowhere to go with yeah. what you were doing and apart from that you were just too busy you didn't think that what you're doing was particularly, you know, earth-shattering. You're just yeah. trying to get it done. For sure. Um, so. Wow. That's amazing. So much advancement from the 50s just to the 70s, just that jump yes. that you guys went yes. through. Was but tremendous. there was a lot of people around the world going through that aren't even mentioned um in a lot of the literature, particularly mm-hmm. in China. Mm. China at that time was going through the um, revolution and uh, Chinese revolution and nothing was get. it was under communist rule and there was yeah. nothing published out of oh, China. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they were doing it, you know, themselves. Yeah. And there wasn't the travel and, and, and all that then. So yeah. it was interesting that People could be in two completely different parts of the world doing exactly the same thing but not knowing of each other. Yeah, and maybe asking the same questions about, oh, or trying absolutely. to figure out the same answers to the yes. same questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, back in my senior year of college, during my clinical internship, I happened to read an article that was authored by you titled The History of the Sonographer. Tell me about the inspiration to write this paper and how it felt to tell the story of how sonography came to be. Well, I was asked to write it, actually, um, for the AIUM, for the 50th um, celebration of the 50th year. We ought to talk about the beginning of the AIUM because it's very different than what people know. Um, But um, I was asked to write it to put in that um, commemorative supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it like to write it? I don't know, it was just like I sat down and wrote it. Um, I'm not sure I thought about it in, the, in that term. I was honoured to be asked, and um, I knew it in detail more than I do today. Mm-hmm. But. Speaking of, could you tell me about a little bit about the beginnings of the AIUM? The AIUM was a um, physician organisation but it was nothing to do with diagnostic ultrasound. It was therapeutic ultrasound. Mm. And a, a company sort of owned it in the sense that they invited people to come and give lectures mm-hmm. and get together once a year. And they were people in physical therapy and physiatry and rehab medicine And they were just starting to use ultrasound on the muscles, Mm. particularly of soccer players. 
because when they were injured, they weren't really able to play the next week and they had a game a week and uh, they needed them on the pitch Mm -hmm. to play. But anyway, the, this company that was associated with the AIUM had um, an instrument that all these people either had purchased or were given, I don't know which, and they got together and discussed their successes for the year. Well, um, that is an unusual type of society, and they weren't paying dues and so on. And I think... The AIUM, in its early days, if I recall them correctly, mm-hmm. they were very um, nervous about anything commercial associated with them because they were diagnostic. They took it over. Okay. So when I first went to the AIUM, there were still physiatrists on the board, mm-hmm. um, but it was won over to diagnostics by the Fry brothers. Dr. Mm-hmm. Fry and his wife, Dr. Kelly Fry, were both using ultrasound. Dr. Fry was using ultrasound to lesion in the brain for Parkinson's disease. So he had therapeutic aspects to his research. And Dr. Kelly Fry, she was specializing in breast ultrasound. And um, they uh, were in Champaign, Illinois. And uh, they wanted to go somewhere to share their research. And they went to the AIUM. Um, And then it gradually became more and more diagnostic Mm -hmm. and less and less therapy. And so that's the start of the AIUM. So the fact that it now has much higher numbers, I think it was on about, well, we should look it up, Mm -hmm. 12 or something years Mm -hmm. before it became diagnostic. Yeah. Okay, so it hadn't been in existence very long when Ellie Schnitzer and I went to that board to, to ask and tell them that we were going to form this organization of non-physicians. Mm-hmm. So that's why we got the response, well, we think it's too premature and we don't know that this profession is going to be around. Even though we were on about the, I don't know, the 12th or 13th annual meeting, mm-hmm. most of those meetings weren't anything to do with what we were doing. Yeah. So they were more than the uh, therapeutic yes. treatment. Yes. Hmm. So you speak about a man in the article by the name of Donald W. Baker integrating the theory of the Doppler principle to ultrasound technology. You know this guy well, correct? I'm married to him now, forty-six years. Yes. Can you tell us how you met Donald and what the impact he has had on your life, both personally and within the world of ultrasound? Well, actually, I met him by being introduced as his wife. I hadn't met him when I was introduced as his wife. A premonition, maybe. <laughs> um, by accident. <laughs> yeah, it was by accident, all right. Um, it was at, in Winnipeg, Canada, at an AIUM meeting. And in those days, the AIUM meetings were scientific in the daytime and in the evening. They had sort of a, a, another program, a sort of social program. Mm-hmm. And uh, that particular night at the AIUM meeting, we were scheduled to go to the New Zealand ambassador's house. I don't know why. He was probably the only ambassador in Winnipeg. (laughs) Um, But we went there, and then after that, we were to go to some club. Well, um, the AIUM board of directors got up on on the, the platform, along with the New Zealand ambassador and his wife, 
and you kind of walked up the steps on one side and went across the Stage. receiving yes. line and uh-huh. down on the other side and then they handed you a glass of champagne which they <laughs> had a toast and um, stuff and so I got to the top of the steps and uh, there was this person beside me at the top of the steps and the concierge, I think that's what you would call him, he was introducing people based mm-hmm. on their name badge. And so he introduced us as man and wife because we both had the same last name. And he must have assumed that how could two people standing next to one another not be related? So that's who we were. What was your reaction when he said that? Who in the hell is he? (laughs) (laughs) I do not know this man. (laughs) Well, no, we didn't say anything, either of us, before walking across the stage. But when we got to the other side... Um, it was like, who are you and who are you? Um, and the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys were married how much late? How long did you guys? Well, we met in guess, the yeah. fall of 1969, mm-hmm. and we were married on July the 4th, 1970, the only day you could get an English woman to surrender. <laughs> That's a perfect date for that. Yes. <laughs> so a short, short uh, dating, and then right into so you guys must have known yeah. pretty early that... Well, I think when you get older, at our, I had not been married before. Mm-hmm. My husband had. He's 10 years older than I am, and okay. I was 20 plus, 27 or something like that. So, so the conversation between you two after you were introduced as man and wife that night, you kind of did at the party afterwards, you guys got to talk and got to know each other? Or did yes. you work together? No, I was dating? in California. Okay. He was in Seattle. Um, yeah, we, we got to talking that our lives had followed similar paths in a way. He's an engineer, and it was more in the development of Doppler. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had sort of... I, well, I was trying to form this organization at mm-hmm. the same time, sort of multitasking again. And um, so I was also not very well. I was sick, actually. Mm. Um, so I'd gone to the hospital a couple of times that week, um, so it was kind of a full, full yeah. agenda. Yeah. And um, as a result of my visit to the emergency room, I wasn't allowed to fly home um, above a certain number of feet mm. because of problems in my ear, from oh. a bleed in my ear. Mm-hmm. And so I went home more or less by train mm-hmm. from Winnipeg to Vancouver and then Vancouver to Seattle, Seattle to Portland, Portland. You know, these wow. little sort yes. of puddle hops yeah. so that I didn't get up above 8,000 square feet. Sure. So. And you made it okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. And what, so what were, how did Don, where did he graduate from? Or, or well, he graduated there? from the University of Washington okay. and um, is an alumni of them. Okay. And, um, and what was his degree in? Electrical engineering. And um, he went into bioengineering and um, and with Dr. Rushmore. And Dr. Rushmore wanted to, he taught a lot of medical students. He was a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted to get up to a podium and be able to have the whole class hear somebody's heart together rather than you know stethoscope stethoscope, Mm -hmm. sharing a stethoscope between Mm -hmm. two people Um, and he asked them to develop a device that he could teach the whole class with and that was the start of the continuous wave Doppler 
Um, and then um, it Kate went into obstetrics mm-hmm. and obviously and um, mainly peripheral vascular disease. And he developed the pulse Doppler, which is what allowed them to appreciate depth. Mm-hmm. And that went into cardiology, pediatric cardiology in particular, with Jeff Stevenson and um, vascular technology with um, uh, Gene Strenis. And um, it had a slow learning curve because physician medical students didn't learn a lot about hemodynamics mm-hmm. and certainly not in the way that the flow was, was represented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a learning curve that had to find its way back into the education of physicians. Okay. And so where was he when you guys met in Winnipeg, Canada? Had he already, was he, had already created Pulse Doppler at that time or were you with um, him when he? No, he had created Pulse Doppler at that time and was kind of on one of these um, travel and share the knowledge tours mm. of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so Smith, Klein and French is who took him up to, uh, paid his way to go to Winnipeg. And actually, they had a, an arrangement between him and um, Smith, Klein, and French for the development of a device called the Dop Tone. Mm. And so, those that have been around a while in ultrasound, they didn't use the word Doppler; they said Dop Tone. Okay. It was a bit the same. You say vacuum cleaner versus Hoover. Yes. It was one of those naming it. Naming it yes. Yeah. And so they had a um, a Dop Tone for um, peripheral vascular disease, and they had a Dop Tone for obstetrical disease uh, because the depths were different obviously yeah. so the I think the OB device had um, uh, two crystals mounted 45 degrees at 45 degree angle mm-hmm. and the peripheral one was a much thinner, thinner smaller and a higher frequency, frequency yeah huh. so and when I, you oh go ahead go ahead, go ahead. is that what in uh was then transitioned to the item that is at the Smithsonian. No, the Smithsonian has the original continuous wave Doppler in it, yes. Yeah. And then uh, was it also applied to through ATL? Well, point? it's the founder, yeah. It was um, not the continuous wave Doppler, but the pulse Doppler. Um, then um, the idea was that ATL... Um, well, ATL would build a Doppler and attach it to other to customers of other manufacturers' equipment mm-hmm. as an add-on mm-hmm. uh, or value added or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call, so that they could do Doppler vascular flow or cardiac information from the Doppler. But what ATL found out was that. There were no two pieces of equipment alike. Even mm-hmm. though they came from the same manufacturer, they weren't alike mm-hmm. in the sense that electronically their signal-to-noise ratio was not the same and so on. That put it is very difficult for then ATL to attach an ultrasound um, Doppler machine that, that would be work. Yeah. So they said, well, we'll just build our own. And so then they hired engineers who built... Uh, con- you know, regular ultrasound devices of which Doppler was a part. And then, you know, it was a big program. There were 30-some people working on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
Yeah. So was the University of Washington when Don was there a hub for medical technology research in general at that time? Or? Yes, I think that's true mm-hmm. and still true today. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely a hub for Doppler. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, that's quite the contribution. I mean, as a sonographer today, quite the contribution yes. to, the, to the profession, I could imagine. And there, imagine were, there were other people it. as well. Um, you know, none of these things, it doesn't yeah. matter what you look at, are one-man bands. Sure. I mean, it, it's not possible for one person to do all of it, build it, and, and so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But to head it up and have the, the thought, uh, it's the... It's the forward thinking, and the um, you have to be careful that you're not building something and then looking for the disease to fit it to. Yes. It's the other way around. Yes. You've got to answer the question, question, not mm-hmm. form the question. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. A very key piece to overall research. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people go off. The, the opposite. The opposite way. <laughs> and find a dead end, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so when you went back to Stanford and Don was in Seattle, yes. did you, you guys dated for a while or did you just... Yeah, for a short or? time from, okay. well, October of 69 to July, yeah, a short time. Okay, all right. And then did you, when did you, you guys got married in what year again? 70. 70. And then did you guys go on to have children of your own? Oh, certainly, yes. Donald was born um, in the December of 71. And um, that's our first child. Mm -hmm. And then our second child was born in May of 78. Okay. And we have two. Okay. (laughs) uh, Together, so. And how did did that work with you guys raising children and and both being very busy professionals? Did you have family to help you with the children? I know your children, your family was all back in in, uh, Europe, correct? We didn't. And I think today my daughter is very mindful of how much time she spends with her children because she doesn't feel like she got a fair shake she was little. And because I think she's probably so right, yes. Well, it's definitely hard when you don't have family also to, to help you out. Where was Don's family? Were, were they were sort of around, but okay. yes, there wasn't. A, no, we kind of tried to do it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you certainly have done a tremendous amount Exactly. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I look back and wonder, how did I do all that? Yeah. But you just kind of put the fires out under your feet. You didn't really reflect like you're asking me to do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. There was no time for reflection. And at that point, was your family, I mean, obviously you decided to overstay your year and a half at that point that you had yeah, Oh, yeah, we were way how past did, how that. How did they feel about that, about you staying here and marrying and yeah. your family? Well, you know... Um, you don't ask a question if you can't handle the answer. So I didn't ask the question. <laughs> and your sister, sister stayed over there? Yes, and well. she lives in Luxembourg. Okay. Yeah, and two brothers live in England. Okay. And my parents aren't here anymore, but mm-hmm. they were in England too. Did they come to the States to visit? Oh, yes, visit about every year. Okay. Yes. All right. Almost every year. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do? You feel like becoming a mother changed your perception on um, as an ultrasound professional, or um, did it also change the way you looked at the way that it, your parents had to let you come over to the states and, and that trust factor that everything was yeah, about? I, I didn't appreciate what a sacrifice that was until mm-hmm. I was in that position. I would say that. 
That was a long time later. Mm-hmm. I never really... They never laid it on me as a, as a guilt thing or... Um, and they didn't push me to do it. So, but they didn't stop me. Mm-hmm. So, and I have to give them a lot of credit for that. Absolutely, that's hard sometimes. Yes. Letting go. Yes. Yeah. And my d- uh, sister left as well. Almost in the same year, mm-hmm. three out of four left the nest. Mm-hmm. So, but a lot of people face that. It was just that I was kind of had an agenda. I was kind of busy. <laughs> kind of busy. <laughs> That's the understatement of the century. <laughs> so, well, then, well then uh, so your kids grew up here in yes. Seattle, is that correct? Yes, they were okay. both born in Seattle. Great. And were you scanning at that time in, in your profession? Were you, yes. Were you perform- where were you doing ultrasound? A Providence Hospital in okay. Seattle. Okay. And I was doing ultrasound and nuclear medicine. Oh, so okay. I had to be careful because I was pregnant and around quite a bit of radiation at the time. So. Yeah, and I imagine that they didn't know a lot, as much as they know about the safety parameters now with NukeMed. Yeah, they knew enough to be careful. To be careful. Yes, I mean, you know, they didn't set up the technetium generator every morning and things like that mm-hmm. during that time. Did you do OB at that time? Yes, but not nuclear medicine. No, ultrasound. Yeah, ultrasound. Yes. Um, let's see. We used the Doppler to notify my parents that I was pregnant by playing the sounds over the telephone. telephone. That's awesome. Um, we took state-of-the-art at the time pictures of Donald when he was in utero. They were B-mode mm-hmm. pictures, um, but they left a lot to be uh, imagined. I was going to ask if you scanned yourself when you were pregnant. I didn't, but somebody else, one of my friends, scanned me. Yes. Okay. Was that with a B-mode scanner? Yes, a... it would be an articulated arm scanner, okay. yes. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yes. And so when you were working, when the kids were young, did they? Did you have to do the daycare situation where you worked during the day, or did you guys kind of bounce the kids back and forth? I just... I was on call 365 days a year <laughs> okay. in nuclear medicine and ultrasound. So when I got called, I put my daughter in the car and off, or my son, should I say, and then my daughter, and went to the work. Um, and we did that in those days back in the early 70s mm-hmm. for, for zero dollars and zero cents. That was part of your job, or was part of my job. Call, you mean? Yes. You called back in? Yes. Pretty much, yes. Did you have um, any maternity leave? How long were you gone after maternity leave? Three days. Three, three days? Yep. And then you had a newborn with you? Yes. If you had to get called in? Yeah, that was when I was teaching at Seattle U. What led to the inspiration for the Seattle University program? And you were the founder of it, correct? Yes. Um, I had the nuclear medicine students for clinical rotation when I was at Providence. And then we, um, the ultrasound got started. You know, I was already involved uh, very much in, in ultrasound because we'd formed the ASUTS and we'd written in there that you had to be practicing to be in the, on the board or, or um, in an in a executive position. I was president, so I had to be practicing. I had to find a machine, and we found one in the EEG department. Hmm. 
And so we kind of resurrected it from there, and I was scanning initially just brains, and then we got the articulated arm, you know, and so on. Then I had the nuclear medicine students, and the dean at the time got to know him as a result of being a clinical faculty. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we're going to have an... Um, an allied health department. They already had a medical technology program, had a cytotechnology program, had a nuclear medicine program, and um, a radiation therapy program. They were going to add ultrasound, and they wanted somebody to head up the whole of allied health. So I went there to head up the whole of allied health. So I had five baccalaureate programs. What and just that? me. 1974... Something like that. And I taught in nuclear medicine and ultrasound, and then I had 18 faculty mm. under me that worked in medical technology and cytotechnology and so forth. And then when I left, they didn't replace me. They split them all back into separate pieces again. Because by then, the, these professions had really developed, mm-hmm. and to find one person that could handle all of them wasn't really feasible particularly my medical technology and cytotechnology you could find somebody that could do those two but not any of the others and you can find people that did nuclear medicine and ultrasound because they did go together in many towns um, because of how they got developed the pathologists got into ultrasound before the radiologists did Mm -hmm. in some cases so there were ways to put a couple of them together, but not all five of them. Mm-hmm. There was nobody that was cross-trained in as yes, many as you right. had to be. Well, I wasn't cross-trained in medical technology or cytotechnology. Mm-hmm. I knew a little bit about radiation therapy only because of I had come from the radiology background. Mm-hmm. But not otherwise, yeah. Mm-hmm. Joan, thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing all of this fascinating and historical information about our profession with us. And we just could not fit it into one interview. We couldn't fit it into even one part of one episode. So we will be back with Joan Baker for episode three, part two of this interview. Don't miss it. Joan is going to go into the current state of sonography, how we got there, and answer um, many more of our questions. So until then, take care. Take care.